And so I've always been a theory why guy. I believe people are not inherently lazy. I do believe that people do have motivations. You just have to sort of tap into whatever triggers their, that motivation to be successful. Hi, everyone. I'm Alan Salisbury, and welcome to another episode of Profiles in Service, a podcast that explores service in all its dimensions, service to our communities, service to the nation, and even service to humanity. For episode two today, we'll be continuing our conversation with Tom Deerline, who we met in episode one. So you're a civil affairs officer, you're doing contracting for construction projects. And as you mentioned, you also did some kind of humanitarian uh, work uh, in, in Baghdad. Uh, I, I think that probably registered and had an impact on you uh, that took you uh, in the direction of where you've gone today. Is, is that a fair statement? Yeah, I think that, you know, again, with when I was there, people don't realize there's a group in the military called civil affairs, and it's less than 2% of the military, and they call it non-kinetic, right? And just as the name applies, civil, as in civilian, your job is to help protect and uh, the civilians that are in the battlefield space. Um, it's not like the Revolutionary War, or even World War I or World War II, where... <laughs> you know, armies go into fields and they fight each other and they're all uniformed. Here, people are melting in and out of the population. They were, you know, bombing marketplaces. And then you've got your average Iraqi family that's just trying to put food on the plate and, and make a living. Um, and I was assigned to Sadr City. And Sadr City is a slum. It's like a two mile by two mile square and it's a slum and it was the worst conditions you can ever imagine, like people living in corrugated tin shacks. Um, you know, it's 125 degrees out, right? Um, and they're like, oh, well, it's the humidity. No, it is not. You stick your head in an oven at 125, I'll tell you, it is boiling hot. And, uh, you know, these families are struggling with food, right? I mean, it was a slum before the war and now, you have the sectarian violence taking place between the Shia and the Sunnis. And it really was just a tough place to, to live. And so I was really impacted by seeing these children every day. Um, and humanitarian aid is one of the core missions of civil affairs, right? So I was like an executive coach for the newly elected mayor of Sadr City. We were doing micro loans and trying to re-stand up factories and small businesses. We were doing essential services, so like sewage, water, electricity, trash, medical, and schools. So we were doing a lot to try and give these folks the, the capability and capacity to manage and govern themselves. But certainly, as we were moving as a nation forward with that process, in my little area, people were still at the trying to survive stage. So it was great that the Mother Army and, and the State Department and the, the Iraqi government were moving towards independence and, and self-sustaining capacity. We were still in Sadr City dealing with, with folks that are really struggling. So we started 
bringing in humanitarian aid whenever we would go on a mission. Uh, and we had some humanitarian aid supplies. And then I reached out to some people back in America and they started shipping me shoes, uh, soccer balls, of course, for the kids. You know, we had beanie babies, um, children's vitamins, right? You'd see a nine-year-old or 10-year-old girl or boy and their, their growth was stunted. They were malnutritioned. You know, so I, I figured that was one way to try and get some basic nutrition into them. And, and so I did start to do those things in that. And in fact, when I, so I got shot, you know, I got shot in September of 06. I got shot by a sniper. I was on a mission. I was part of a, 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 a mission or a, a, an operation called Operation Together Forward 2. This is public information. I'm not sharing anything out of school you could Google Operation Together Forward to. And it was the, the in summer of 2006, trying to re-secure Baghdad. And it was actually the failure of that mission that led to uh, General Petraeus going to Congress and, and requesting the surge, which we, we call. Um, and so during that time, uh, when I got shot, we had been planning a fundraiser with some of my friends from the digital media world and um, Bill Flatley at Forbes and, and Sean Finnegan and, and Paul Bremer had gotten together to set up this fundraiser that I was gonna attend while I was back in New York City at my mid tour break. Well, I ended up getting shot and was in the hospital but they went ahead with the fundraiser and they raised like $18,000. Um, and the checks started showing up and they said, Tom Deerline Foundation. <laughs> you know? So I had to go and set up a checking account called the Tom Deerline Foundation and deposited all those, those checks. And for the first five years of the organization, that's what we were focused on was providing humanitarian aid to uh, children in Iraq and Afghanistan. These innocent children impacted by war, right? These weren't militant kids, these weren't terrorist kids, these were just innocent girls and boys that were trying to, you know, have a basic life. So we started doing a lot of school supplies, again, a ton of clothes, uh, children's vitamins. We shipped over $50,000 uh, of uh, school supplies over that time frame. over $25,000 worth of children's vitamins. And one of the main things that the TD Foundation did during its first five years is we would grab children that needed surgery, a lot of heart surgeries. Uh, we were partnered with Gift of Life International, um, uh, Riley's Children's Hospital out of Indiana. So we would grab children out of Iraq and Afghanistan, fly them to Jordan and give them these life-saving heart surgeries. So that was most of the work uh, for TD Foundation over the first few years. And then in, in 2013, right, there's no troops anymore in Iraq and Afghanistan or minimal, right? And most of our effort was mailing it to those folks and they would distribute it. So we've pitted the mission back to children here. And, and we realized that the children of our wounded warriors and our gold star families were struggling. You actually started this foundation and, and incorporated it while you were on active duty then? No, it was a little after, right? So I we applied for the IRS early 08. So no, maybe it was 07, but we didn't get approved till 09 officially. So, you know, cause it took a while. 
And, 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 I'm, and I'm sure they, you know, the IRS like, wait, 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 you're giving aid to Iraq and Afghanistan? Like, wait, time out. You know, but I finally got somebody on the phone. I said, no, look, you know, this is how it works. And I described the operation. And then we did finally get approved. But you're, you're 100% disabled and medically retired. Uh, and uh, now you're looking with some, uh, some other folks to maybe start a company. Uh, and there are provisions for service disabled veterans to get some advantages. And how did, how did the go, to go about founding uh, what became Thundercat? So, um, yeah, so I, I sort of skipped that part of the story. I, in September of, of 06, I got shot and I spent the next eight, seven and a half, almost eight months at Walter Reed uh, and then the Polytrauma Center in the VA down in, in Tampa, the spinal cord polytrauma center. So I'm an L5-S1 spinal cord injury. I had a sniper uh, shatter my pelvis and, and the, the sacrum at the base of my spine. And um, So yes, I'm a disabled veteran. And when I was doing rehab at Walter Reed, a good buddy of mine, uh, West Point of the class of 90 that served in Berlin with me, and then he had hooked up with some people at a company he and I worked together at. And he the guy's name was Doug Dunkel. And he had partnered with a guy named Bob Eisenminger to help start Night Point Systems. And he said, hey, well, I'd like, we'd like to go visit your buddy. But unlike some other people that used to come and visit, and you know, and I loved all my visitors, don't get me wrong, but these guys came a few times and they would always bring me like a Panera sandwich and the soup. And, and then when I started to do my rehab, workouts they came and we did like leg lift contests you know and they let me win um and but it was fun and we got to know each other and it turned out that i had known bob and because he had been on a soccer team with a buddy of mine way back in the day um so it was all sort of six degrees of separation we'll cut to a year later and as you pointed out within the the government or federal procurement system, they have set-aside programs. And a set-aside program is for sm give small businesses a chance. And they have programs for minority, women-owned small businesses, hub zone, all these different categories of small businesses allowing them to compete and win government contracts. They also have one for veterans, or in my case, disabled veterans. And so Nightpoint was trying to become a services company, information technology services, but while they were doing all the daily care, <clears throat> daily care and feeding of all these data centers, they would say, oh, well, we need 10 more servers or we need some storage or can you throw some networking gear on there? Well, all of a sudden they were becoming too big to be a, services, a small services company. And they weren't big because they were selling services. They were big because they were selling products that they weren't even trying to sell. So they reached out to me and we met and discussed. I'm like, why would I want to sell products that no, you know, so I came in and bought the products group from Nightpoint Systems and it became Thundercat Technology. My call sign in Baghdad was Thundercat 6, so hence the name Thundercat Technology. Well, you obviously found a pretty good niche because you don't get to 400 million uh, without really filling real needs. Uh, let's switch gears now for a minute, Tom. Uh, you're a proponent of what's called servant leadership and uh, also of theory why as a management philosophy. Could you tell us what these are and why they're important to you? Yeah, so very early on in the military, you're right, you're, you're taught about the importance of leadership, right? If you think about it, 
if IBM wants a top executive or GM or Walmart wants to, they can go raid another organization or even raid a government. But it's not like, you know, you're in the US Army and they're like, oh, look at that hot general in Brazil. Let's, let's get her up here and uh, put her in, in this role. Or hey, here's his super hot general in uh, Spain, he's he's a rocket ship. Let's let's bring him in and give him the 82nd Airborne. Like you don't, you, you have, you don't, or even like, oh, here's this Navy Admiral. Let's grab him and make him an Air Force General. Like you don't do that. You have to develop your leaders from within. So from the very first day, a private is striving to be a corporal. A corporal is striving to be a sergeant. A sergeant is striving to be a platoon sergeant. You know. Officers are striving to lead bigger and bigger organizations. And that means you, you need to study, understand, and appreciate mm -hmm. leadership. So that's the first context that I was given is that the military is always focused on leaders and leadership development. Think about the military. What do we call it? Being in the service. <laughs> I was in the service, people say. We, we, now we say I'm a veteran. We don't say that phrase as much anymore but you're serving your nation. And then about 20, 25 years ago, a book came out called Servant Leaders or Servant Leadership. I'm, I'm missing the title, but it, it's an attitude and it's a behavior, right? You're not the boss, you're not the manager, you're serving others. I work for you. We work together, I work for you. I make sure you have the resources, the training, whatever you need to be successful. In fact, if you look at Francis Hesselbein, who, um, who wrote, co-wrote that book with Shinseki Be No Do, she's the former CEO of, of Girl Scouts. She's a Presidential Medal of Freedom winner. Her Twitter handle is to serve is to live. Mm -hmm. She has embraced that, that service to others is what leadership is about. Tell us about theory why. Oh, theory why. So again, at West Point, you know, you take psychology or theories of motivation. And I, was it McGregor? You know, you, you look at some of these classic folks that studied uh, motivation at, at the turn of the last century. And there was a guy, I think it was McGregor, that came out and said, well, you know, theory X and theory Y. Like theory X believes that people will inherently avoid work or I don't want to say lazy. I don't want to misuse the phrase, right? Theory Y suggests that work is as natural as play and people do enjoy work and are motivated by, you know, achievement and goal setting and, and the things that happen at work. So Theory X means people need to be pushed, right? Carrot and stick. Theory Y suggests that people have internal motivation for work. Work is as natural as play. And so I've always been a Theory Y guy. I believe people are not inherently lazy. I do believe that people do have motivations. You just have to sort of tap into whatever triggers their, that motivation to be successful for, and point that effort towards your organizational goals. Well, you've told us a little bit about uh, the, the TD Foundation and its roots and uh, part of the kinds of work that it does today. But uh, I, I have to pause for a moment and say full disclosure, that uh, our Code of Support Foundation uh, is a strong partner with the TD Foundation, or I should say you are a strong partner of Code of Support Foundation. Uh, and that's a little bit different, uh, but, but uh, would you tell us how you see yourself 
uh, in your foundation interacting and supporting other organizations like ours? Um, we are all volunteer, right? We run three or four events that raise money, <clears throat> but we don't have any operations. We don't have any uh, caseworkers. We don't have any advocates. Um, we don't have staff, like we're all volunteers. So we really are, are centered around driving this money and then establishing the right partners. So in, in many ways, we almost act as a financial resource to our partners. And you've mentioned it, Code of Support is a partner. Um, uh, America's Warrior Partnership, uh, Wounded Veteran uh, Family, uh, you've got uh, SOCOM Care Coalition, the station, the Boulder Crest um, groups. So you might have these broader organizations. Oh, and, and Gold Star Teen Adventures is a big partner of ours as well. I, I, I shouldn't uh, hesitate to, to mention them. Um, so they might have a broader mission, but they might get a case that fits our specific mission. And our mission has always been the children the children of the wounded warriors or the gold star uh, kids. So take an organization like Code of Support that provides a, a myriad of, of uh, services on, on a broader mission, including the incredible Patriot link that hooks people up to appropriate uh, partners. You might come across a case and if there's a child under 18 and it's odd, right? Like it's not like it's covered by somebody else. Like it's not education based or whatever it is. That's how we work. So people bring us cases and they say, hey, here, here we have a situation. Can you help with this situation? And it's, Alan, it's, it's, it's all the kind of stuff that gets rejected. Like we do pay a lot of medical bills that TRICARE has rejected. Or um, we have a, 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 like we bought a septic tank once. <laughs> Guys yep. sets up a new house and he can't get move into the house until he has a certified septic tank. Um, car repairs. We pay a lot of utilities. We pay a lot of mortgages and we pay a lot of rent. So we do do a lot of work around preventing veteran homelessness. We pick up a lot of uh, educational costs, right? So if you think about our, the, the kind of people we're helping, you might have a soldier that's banged up and the wife is full-time taking care of him and trying to raise two kids. So they're living at or right below the poverty level. And if some unanticipated or unexpected cost comes up, they don't have $100. They don't have $200. So, you know, we've bought Chromebooks, uh, laptops. We've bought clothing for kids to be able to go to the first day of school and be just like all the other kids. But yeah, a lot of auto repairs, a lot of medical bills that people won't pay for. Or I'll give you one more example, then I'll turn it back over to you. But Someone comes to you with a case and they say, hey, I got this recently medically retired Airborne Ranger, uh, two-time Purple Heart, medically retired. He's, his baby was just born premature. The baby's in the NICU. And the NICU is, is 100 miles away. Okay, but maybe TRICARE picks up the NICU costs, but who's paying for the hotel and the gas and the food? And who's paying for the babysitter for the other two kids that stayed home while mom and dad are checking on the baby in the NICU for the next six weeks. Well, those bills add up. And if, and if you're on a fixed income or haven't quite transitioned out of the military to a civilian job, they don't have $2,000. Well, that's where code of support, 
or SOCOM Care Coalition or Wounded Veteran Family Care or others like us step in and help these families that are in crisis. Yeah, that's the beauty of the private sector is that uh, we don't have to apply the same rules that government does. Uh, we, we get to establish our own rules and even when it makes sense, break our own rules. But the point is we can get the job done and, and we're so proud and happy to have been able to team with you for some of these things that otherwise just fall through the cracks. No, and, uh, and, and that's, I think that's our specialty, right? Like no red tape, well, you guys do the vetting. So I know you guys have some processes and procedures, but once a case is put in front of us, Sometimes we're funding it that exact same day. Like I think about the number of times I've had to drop what I'm doing and call a bank or wire money to somebody to prevent uh, someone from being kicked out of their house or their car being repossessed. But it is, it's like, it's like uh, there's a, a, a girl that had developmental issues, but as she got older, the father couldn't, because he had his own injuries, carry her up the stairs. So we bought one of those sliding chairs. I don't even know what they're called. That, that goes up and down the stairs. Like yeah. who's gonna, who would cover that? Like, that's where I think folks like you and I specialize in, in those cases where we just fulfill the need. It doesn't have to fit in a bucket. If there's a child of a wounded warrior or a Gold Star family, TD Foundation will help them. You, uh, you mentioned SOCOM, which is Special Operations Command Care Coalition. Uh, you play a very different role with them too, I think, and, and similar to what you have personally done with the uh, Wounded Warrior Project as a mentor. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so when, when I got to Launch Tool, I was out of it, right? Drugged up and, and banged up, uh, in and out of consciousness, you know, and, and I remember <clears throat> looking up and, and this guy is like, my name is Sergeant whoever. <laughs> and he goes, I'm with SOCOM. And I'm with the SOCOM Care Coalition and we're gonna take care of you. I'm about to get emotional, you know, and <clears throat> I didn't know at the time, but what they meant, but there was a special group set up to take care of special operations soldiers that were injured in combat. And it was called the Care Coalition. And they, all during the time that I was at Walter Reed, they took care of me, they took care of my family. Um, and then they set up a mentor program, a peer-to-peer -peer mentor program. So from like 08 to 2011, 2012, I was involved with the Care Coalition as a peer mentor. And I mentored four other people that had similar injuries or similar situations to mine. Um, and I'm still in touch with three of those four folks. Um, and it was, it was a very rewarding experience. We did do a lot of different training and all of that. And they have their, obviously their professional advocates, but they assigned uh, these peer um peer mentors as well. And so I was involved with them in, in, in that way, yeah. Very rewarding, very rewarding experience. Well, there's so many sides of you to explore, Tom. Uh, I, I can't resist uh, asking you to relate a, a little anecdote about a trip to China that you took uh, in 2009. And uh, that kind of changed your life forever as well, I think. Yeah, I mean, it was, I think that was a good decision and a bad decision in that. You know, so uh, what Alan's referring to is my engagement. You know, so my first wife left me when I was in Walter Reed in a, in a wheelchair. And maybe that's another time for a different podcast and a different yeah. time and story. But so I get back to New York, you know, I'm injured, I'm divorced, I'm feeling like damaged goods. And, uh, but I got an eHarmony and I, I met my wife and immediately we started dating, getting along well, like spending, she lived out in Long Island, I was in New York City. 
We started spending every weekend together. And pretty soon I decided that this was who I wanted to spend the rest of my life with. And so just after we'd been dating about a year, I planned this big trip because I thought, man, I want to go somewhere special that we can revisit. You know, she doesn't love to travel. <laughs> you know? And China's like a 16 hour flight. So I don't know what I was thinking, but to your point, you know, I got a ring. We went to China and I think it was the third day that we were there. We were on the Great Wall of China. So I wait till she turned to look out over the wall. And when she turned back around, I was on my knee and I asked her if she would uh, be my wife. Yeah. Obviously, she said yes. Today, you have uh, you have three kids, three sons, I guess it is. Uh, as a final thing, uh, any thoughts you'd care to share on parenting versus leadership and your styles of those? You know, it's, it's funny. I think I may be a better leader than a parent. I think that, you, you know, there's so many parenting advice out there. The hardest part uh, for me, for being a parent, is, is making my kids struggle. Um, I'm a big proponent of, of grit, and I've become a bit of an acolyte of the work that Angela Duckworth did, and, and anyone that's listening to this, if you have not seen her TED Talk or read her book, Grit, I highly, highly, highly recommend it. But it's like you have to allow people to fail. And I think that's the thing I struggle with most as, as a parent right? Like letting my kids struggle and fail and letting them know that it's okay. And, and then coaching them on what to do when you fall short or when you do fail. Um, and I think that that does create some parallels in leadership because some people do struggle with delegation or allowing folks to be given challenges. It might be a little above what their level is, but give them a chance and delegate and coach, but don't do the work for them. And so I can be a bit of a, I guess, 20 years ago, they were helicopter parents. And now we have snow plow, snow plow parents where you push all of the obstacles out of the way. And so I do struggle with that. I'm trying to do a better job of letting my kids fend for themselves and giving them chances to strive for things that are a little above what they can do, let them fail, and then coach them through what to do um, when those things happen, because I, th I think that if you don't do that and you shelter them or, or do too much for them, you're not preparing them for what uh, life can be like. Well, that's a great uh, note to close on. And, and Tom, I really want to thank you for sharing your, your stories with us today. Uh, and I'm sure our leaders and viewers, readers and viewers and listeners, whatever, uh, share my view that you are a terrific role model for selfless service, for leadership and for philanthropy. Uh, thank you for your service to our nation, your personal sacrifice and your continuing leadership into helping make this world truly a better place. Thanks, Tom. I'm honored, Alan. And, and obviously, I'm just trying to live up to the standard that you've set. And uh, I appreciate you having me as your first guest. This 
podcast is powered by and copyright of the Coda Support Foundation. Coda Support Presents Profiles and Service is hosted by Major General Alan B. Salisbury and produced by Carly Van Tassel. The opinions of the guests on the show do not directly reflect the stance of the Coda Support Foundation. To learn more about Coda Support, please visit www.codasupport.org or follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and YouTube. Finally, if you or someone you know is a service member, veteran, caregiver, or military family member in need of assistance, please visit codasupport.org slash get help or create a free account at patriotlink.org.